Welcome to Inside Dance, a podcast that celebrates the Bates Dance Festival dance community. I'm your host, Lindsay LaPointe. In 2007, the Bates Dance Festival was having its 25th anniversary. Suzanne Carboneau facilitated a panel discussion with festival founder Marcy Plavin and Dan Wagner, the first artist to be presented in the summer of 1983. The following day, Suzanne sat down further with Dan Wagner for a more in-depth conversation about his work and ideas as a dance maker. Dan Wagner is a renowned American modern dance choreographer. He danced with Martha Graham, Merce Cunningham, and Paul Taylor, and for 25 years, he directed his own New York-based company, Dan Wagner and Dancers. He choreographed more than 55 dances for his company, which performed throughout the US, Canada, South America, Europe, and Asia, as well as presented an annual concert in New York City. Well, I, I wish I were a writer because I think there's an, an important understanding and information that needs to, I think, for people to think about whether they agree or not, that we are, dance, of course, the instrument is the human body. And as a choreographer and teacher and as a dan former dancer, it behooves one to know one's body. Uh, not just anatomy and the architecture, but also the metaphysical aspects, the subconscious, all of those aspects of the body. And of course, we're basically, we're an animal, but we're a human animal. And I think that there's tremendous uh, effort or uh, feeling that the animal functions, there, there's something unpleasant about them, mm -hmm. and that they should be covered up mm -hmm. uh, to deny that we sweat, uh, that we eliminate, that we procreate, that we exchange fluids, is some people can hardly face the fact that that's what life is. But for me, it's, it, it, I revel in those things it, because it, it, it feeds back to my own kinesthetic awareness and literacy of myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was an ad um, years ago in New York, a ballet couple were dancing and they were sweating profusely. And the British voice came over the, for a deodorant and said, a perspiration problem here. And I found myself screaming at the set, it's a solution. The body stays 98.6 tenths temperature no matter what, how hot or how cold. And that these systems are all organic and natural. And I think in the same way that we reject organic food, we reject the organics of the body often. That all of the culture conditions us. Dancing's behavior and we behave according to the culture. And we may fall in line and do everything like everybody else up to a certain age, and then all of a sudden realize, I don't want to behave this way anymore. Or some do, and they continue. But usually for a dancer, it's, it's his behavior that they become interested in. And wanting to experience all of those grand functions of the body. You put your finger on a hot stove, and you don't think, oh, that's hot, I better take my finger off. It pops off. There's a protective system of, of when there's fear, of the adrenaline and the ability to run faster and you forget about your knee hurts. <laughs> you run to get away from the bear. And um, so there are all these wonderful natural instincts that are in the body. And of course, one of the, the strong energy is the erotic energy, the central energy. And dancers must always deal with this if they're going to dance well, I think. Mm -hmm. That they have to deal with those sensations in the body which are central and have to do with the erotic energy. And then 
and when that can be integrated with the forebrain, with a good intelligent person, uh, there's an integration and then there's an understanding, there's an insightfulness that uh, makes everything possible, I think. Mm -hmm. And, um, but we've lost a lot of that, I think, through, through the diet we live, uh, the obesity is, that's become like a, a problem, I guess, because there's so many heavy people, that all of that would not be there, I think, if we learned where our pelvises are and, and could move our pelvis, and that this is not a, a shameful, uh, irreligious, uh, thing to do, but on the contrary, it enters us into our bodies in a way that become, the body becomes the most divine that it can become, and sublime. And the Asians know this. They the, the tantric Hindu practices that uh, glory in the sensuality and in the uh, the uh, what to, the endorphins that it releases and the uh, circulation of those energies through the body. And I think that there's an equivalent of this when one performs, that there's an adrenaline, there's an experience that's very different than when there's no audience there. There's an energy set up where you face each other, and that it causes an experience, I think, for the dancer, <clears throat> a, pop, a, a chance for an experience <clears throat> that is incredibly enlightening and wonderful. This has happened to me. There was once when I did a duet with Miriam Barnes. It was called Duet, I guess, and it was to uh, Purcell's the Ario Dido and Aeneas in the, um, what are the operas? Dido and Aeneas. Mm -hmm. Aeneas. Aeneas is the name of it. And we did it in New York at one of those alternate spaces years ago. My manager had found the space. It wasn't La Mama, but it was one of those buildings. And it was kind of informal setup and so forth, but Jennifer had made some very nice lights. And Jennifer Tipton. Yes, yeah. Jennifer Tipton. And before, uh, before the dance started, I I don't know what the feeling was, but it was one of incredible elation. And when I did the duet, it was as if I knew everything before it happened. I knew how it was going to happen and what it felt like. It was like just dwelling in heaven. <laughs> and, and she was a lovely, lovely dancer, yielding and giving. And so it was, um, it was an incredible experience. And I think that that, uh, that comes only when you can fully energize all the systems of the body, the nervous you know, the breathing, the digestion, the elimination, the muscles, the running, the stretching, that all of these wonderful, wonderful things are incorporated in dance. And I do think, and I'm not prejudiced at all, that dance is the ultimate way to exist, <laughs> that it involves uh, a chance for awakening up every, every bit of instinct and perception that we have. And the more you practice that, the more it happens, the further it goes. I was talking with the Wagners, where I'm staying here today, about, I, I'd forgotten about this, but years ago I began to think that in trying to make a dance, if you get an idea and can slip in through kind of a time warp, that the idea takes on a DNA. And once you grasp onto it, if you don't let go, it'll take you right where that dance needs to go. And, uh, but, it, you know, that's kind of a, a state of, of insight that we all, I think, try to approach. I mean, even people who aren't aware of it try to do activities in their life or they'll do something and realize that that got them somewhere quite nice and they'll repeat it then. And, and I think that, that dancing is addicting in that way, that it, once you do it or if you do it well <clears throat> and are involved in the aesthetics as well as the physical, you know, everything from 
shift your weight to your left foot to put your soul over there in that box. You know, <laughs> that it's all those things are involved, and it's a divine thing to do. Uh, and um, but of course, uh, I, I, it's what I've done all my life, and it's what gives life meaning. Uh, you know, to have a passion for something is quite wonderful. And if one has a child, it certainly behooves us that if the child shows a passion for something, to encourage it and to, um, to help that person find their way because it, it enters you into, into delight. I keep thinking that maybe this we're living in uh, paradise and that the exile will come when the earth trembles and shakes and is polluted and we have to, a few can get into the rockets and thrust off to another <laughs> planet. <laughs> but that we should uh, really revel in, in the beauty that's here now. And I was so happy last night to, somebody had made the remark about, you know, oh, Suzanne's here bringing the intellectual to this festival, and I cringe when I hear those kinds of things, mm -hmm. um, because of course dancers are the most intelligent people I know, and um, I was so grateful when you yes. stepped in in your very kind and gentle way mm -hmm. and said something about that. I wonder you could talk about the intelligence that you know that kind of intelligence mm -hmm. of dancers that other people I think don't recognize mm -hmm. as intelligence. Mm -hmm. that intelligence only exists on the page. So yes. Well, I think it is. It's it's our culture again, cultural behavior that we uh, we become experts that we uh, keep dividing. Uh, you know that you can be a good cook and a good dancer. You can be a good uh, engineer and a good uh, physicist. That we separate and become experts in less, you know, in, we know more and more about less and less. Mm -hmm. And I think that, the, as I said earlier, that the integration of the sensual and uh, the intellect just makes the most magnificent human being that there is. I also think that smartness, intellect, brains, I find it very uh, erotic mm -hmm. and sexy. And um, of course, if, uh, and I think that um, that the division is not interesting to divorce one from the other because it's all integrated there in the body. And if we exercise it, then it comes into being. But if we just sit passively, if we exercise, what? If we exercise the combination of the two, oh. the forebrain and the wherever, the low shock, all the chakras, mm -hmm. get them going, that it enlightens and, and helps us to know what to, know what to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, that we tend, of course, as a culture to separate things. So, you know, you bring the intellect and I'll bring the pelvis. Or then we, But what would be fun then is to switch and let me do the intellect. <laughs> so, and, and we both could because we're interested in that, I think. But there's, I don't know, I, I think it's, it's like re-examining our attitudes towards the human body, the human creature. That there are so, such basic things that cause a huge furor, nudity, uh, painting, um, uh, photography, anything, you know, the wrong parts exposed of the body. And then it becomes like a fetish. It almost becomes like a, uh, something that's unreal. And I think that the aberrations and distortions of many people who suffer painfully from inhibitions or from uh, that the erotic energy makes them ill instead of curing them. The erotic energy can heal and can help us. And it, but we fight against ourselves. 
It's like when you dance, that if you get, you try to get your pelvis forward and lined up, and the arms are way behind you, you're going to be fighting with your balance. But if you bring them to where you can see that they're there, not that you then don't go against those things to distort and show other things, but if you can pull the body together physically, it operates, it balances, it turns, it, it, it can jump, it can do anything. And um, I'm not sure, how did I get off onto balancing the body or fight, oh, fighting against oneself. And if one is taught that these sensual feelings are nasty and wrong, then you're going to be in conflict because it's nature's way of ensuring the ongoing of the race. I had a woman, a lovely friend, Ruth Deck, and I had Lhasa Apso, who's a Tibetan dog, and she raised them. And um, whenever she was breeding or did not want to breed, and the, the bitch would be in heat, she would put fences up and go away and come back, and lo and behold, the the female dog had gotten pregnant. How they had done it, who knows? But the urge is so strong and unrelentless. So why not deal with it? Because it is, it's a healing energy. And it integrates the body in, in, a, in a way that fulfills it. And I think that in our culture that uh, the intellect, although certainly America doesn't seem to me has that many intellectuals, uh, but one wishes that, that um, that there were, and but we do tend to, even in most of the schooling, as a student, you sit passively in a chair, and the teacher gives out information. Of course, in dance, you put on tight clothing, and you get up on the floor, and you put your body on the line, and it's not your body on the line just for physical lining up and the mechanics and the virtuosity of technique, but a good dance class includes philosophy, mathematics, physics, every music timing, everything under the sun, and it's, it's a glorious convergence of all of these skills and understandings and explorations. And we have this instrument, each of us has it as long as we breathe, we have that instrument, and it's just full of wonderful race remembrance. The, the bank and the brain in all those different places is incredible. And if you can get to the point of losing all inhibitions about what should be or should not be, and can revel in the in the glory of all those systems of the body. You just have you have you know you probably probably that's very much what happens to a Suzanne Farrell, to a Baryshnikov, to a Martha Graham. Martha most certainly did. I knew her, and she was just really deeply involved. I mean, if you see her pieces, uh, there was a uh, what was it um, Phaedra. And it was overtly uh, about eroticism. And uh, was it Phaedra the one that married um, uh, Theseus? And Theseus had a son, a grown son, Hippolytus. And Phaedra, is this Phaedra, the, the heroine? And she falls in love with Hippolytus, and he rejects her. And her, she, her vengeance is, she's, that's right up her alley, of course, vengeance is mine, and <laughs> off she goes. But boy, it's, 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 uh, it's cathartic to see her do that and to have seen her do it and to hear about. She did a piece called Embattled Garden, and it was about Adam and Eve and the snake and Lilith, the, the, the mythical early figure in the Garden of Eden. And um, Adam and Eve, it, it's like an orgy, and they just, all of this writhing and uh, Carlos Surinac made the music, and Noguchi did the set. And at one point, Eve cradles Adam in her arms, he's on his back, and she rocks with him. 
and it was, looked like the Pieta. And I asked Martha, I said, that seems uh, contradictory at the height of that bacchanal orgiastic thing to bring in this religious image. And she said, Dan, I don't think that you can reach that place without going through everything that's possible. That, that it's, you have to experience everything in order to arrive at this state of, of uh, insight and, and transcendence. And I've always remembered that, and I, I think that, uh, that I probably agree with that very much. Mm. It's fascinating to bring up Graham because to, to me I've always seen this sort of, that the sexuality in Graham seems to be so, so tortured, though. Yes. And you're, you talk about sexuality as, you know, so uh, uh, something that we should accept mm -hmm. and it would be so mm -hmm. beautiful for us. And remember that Martha Graham was born in 1894, and she grew up more or less Victorian. Her father was a doctor who did some psychiatry, which was very new at the time. And I, I hate to say when I was born. <laughs> I was born in 1932 in a depression. And um, so there we, she was in a much uh, a more affluent society and culture than I was. I'm youngest of ten from Appalachia, farm family. So the backgrounds were very different in a way. And, but I could see what she was doing and how she did it. And the thing is that it was often torture because I think that she was representing very much what was happening to people from her generation who were suppressing um, the erotic energy and that it was painful. And for herself, you know, it, it seems extraordinary, but I remember her telling, no, Ethel Butler told me this story. And I think I heard Martha relate to it later, that she did not have any sexual instruction as a young woman. And that she went off to a party in a white party dress and started menstruating. And, the, and of course she described it, the red, the uh, stained the dress and so forth. That uh, although she spoke about that, a very personal and embarrassing thing, uh, and which it probably was for her at that time. But she wanted to deal with it, and, but I think often it was anguish. But you have to remember that, like in Clytemnestra, at the end of it, she's triumphant. She receives redemption, and she goes gloriously running around the stage with the green fronds in her hand. Mm -hmm. and, that, and I think that for Martha, um, her life was a battle, was a struggle, and she was going to win, and <laughs> whatever it, it took. But it, it seems to me many of her dances have to do with going through the crisis and then arriving at redemption and understanding and, uh, and, a, and a bit of peace at some point. But it was always with a huge struggle. You're right. Mm -hmm. Bloody. Mm -hmm. And she took those myths that were so bloody. And Medea eating her own, serving up her own children to the jealousy. That that dance is just red with jealousy, isn't it? Uh, from beginning to mm -hmm. end. And the umbilic red umbilical cord that she pulls out and eats it. And, God, how'd she get away with all of that? It's wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> Come to think of it, it's you know, it's it's very and it's and I, I imagine I never dealt never dealt with eroticism in a way, not even like Paul did. And um, what is that where they wear the big Bertha, mm -hmm. and Carolyn Adams wore the poodle skirt. Betty was the automaton. Paul was the daddy, <clears throat> and it's you know about daddy's little girl. This will be our secret, and. Um, <laughs> But I never have, uh, thinking back, I've, I've never gone through my, my, what I've made and tried to categorize or analyze or even look at what I did. Maybe I should do that. But it's 
somewhat painful to go back to it because it's so out of my life now, mm -hmm. and I don't think we'll, I'll ever have again. But um, I think that when you make a dance, you have a choice as to where you want to go. And I love, I love, I love love and peacefulness and kindness, <laughs> and that's where I usually went mm -hmm. in the dances. But I was interested in abstraction also, and we're just abstract, adding up abstractive, abstract kind of uh, syntax, movement vocabulary, and rhythms, and to see where that would lead. Mm -hmm. But um, music often was a springboard for me. And, and I did, I made duets that usually, I, or I thought, they seemed rather sensual and tender, and uh, a loving aspect. Mm -hmm. and, and of course that shows, you know, I, being the youngest of ten, the five oldest were all women. So they were like, I had like six mothers, and was spoiled terribly, and enjoyed every minute of it, mm -hmm. but could play a lot by myself in fantasy, of writing plays and, and making a lot of different things. So we are conditioned very much by our culture. And I was lucky. We weren't materialistically rich, but other ways, otherwise. There was music. My sister played the piano with her banjos and guitars. My mother loved to play games. Made them up, and there was enough of us that we could do charades and run and hide in the house and go after each other. And there was music and, um, and, and a good sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> And, and fun. Mm -hmm. um, ha, can, maybe we can go back. I'm fascinated by the what you brought up about the DNA of a dance that you were talking about yes. earlier this morning. Maybe, yes. maybe you could go into that a little bit more. Uh, well, I was in London. I directed London Contemporary Dance Theater for a couple of years, <clears throat> and I was working on a piece, the last piece I made there. And I don't think there's a very good record of it. I think maybe it was the best piece I've made. It was Bartok's Fourth String Quartet, which scared the hell out of me, <clears throat> but I was fascinated by it. So I listened, as I had done with the Shostakovich String Quartet before that, the 15th one, <clears throat> and I did the same thing with Bartok, that I listened, the moment I was home and or had a free moment, I listened to the music. And the music became like a landscape that I could go into and explore. And the exploration then could be the dance. And I think that I, at that, that's the time that I got this idea that, um, that once you kind of find the time warp <clears throat> to slip into an idea, if you get it in your head and you keep, become obsessed with it, no matter how simple the idea, like how to get from there to there, or how to, to make ten people get from there to there, and traffic problems, um, qualities of movement, slithery, percussive, quick, sustained. Um, that once you get uh, an idea going, the idea takes on a DNA. <clears throat> and if you grasp it and hang on strong enough, it'll take you right where you need to go to make the dance. That the D and I keep thinking of that of ourselves. We are programmed with DNA. And if we open up our senses and stay alive to the environment and to our own, <clears throat> our own existence, we will go places we never had an idea that we could go. <clears throat> that the DNA will take us there. And, but if you shut those systems down, the erotic system, just say no, uh, then you're going to, a lot of beautiful places and things that could happen will, will be gone. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, anyway, I, and, but maybe I was just trying to reassure myself, scared as hell every time starting a dance, which I think any choreographer who's honest will say the same thing. 
But I thought, my God, if I... <clears throat> it was like then having faith, to have faith in what you had learned, your own history of experiences, and that to have enough faith in that, that I will know what to do when it comes to that part of the dance. And sometimes I would get stymied and just nothing, tried everything to push the dance forward, to get the next passage of movement. And then I would go home and just have to say to the dancers, it's, we may as well quit. And the next day know exactly what to do. Maybe having had a dream or something, but know what to do. And it helped me then to realize that I don't have to make the whole piece in one fell swoop and that tomorrow is a chance for another idea and to, that the DNA will continue to reveal itself. So maybe it was a, a um, <clears throat> safety precaution I took to reassure myself that I could get to the end of the dance. I don't know. <laughs> but, and of course, the, you know, there's ups and downs. When it's going well and it seems to be spinning itself out, revealing the DNA to you, it's just heavenly. There's nothing like it. If you have good dancers who understand also, and they're right there making it happen, and then there's just those times you think, nothing is, why did I ever think I could dance or choreograph? And, but maybe it's that anguish that keeps, goads us on, the, the bit of grit in the oyster that makes the pearl grow. <laughs> why were you terrified of the bar talk? Uh, it seemed to uh, contain so much. The rhythms and the sounds, and I haven't listened to it for a while, I might respond very differently to it now. The, the rhythms and the sounds were so rich, and they took me in my own head so many places, and I thought, I can never find the movement to grasp all of this. It's so complex. I think it was the complexity. And, and the th same way with the Shostakovich. The Shostakovich, George, the 15th string quartet, it, it, it's, very, it's not easy, it's not an easy quartet, but it's really quite powerful, I think. And George had heard it and suggested it, and I listened to it for over a year, and it scared me. And, uh, <clears throat> but what I finally did in that, I began to think of, of Russian novels with all of the plots and subplots and the different houses and clans and the, the layers of, of peasants and the uh, aristocracy. So I kind of divided the dancers up into a, a family group, and then another three group that were sort of more ethereal, uh, metaphysical, a lot of lifting and floating in the air. And um, Gwyneth Jones was in that, and she just was glorious in, in, with the two men in her. And uh, uh, so and once I did that, that gave me a basic kind of place to make these imaginings in my head as I listened to the music. Mm. And, uh, but it was difficult to find the day-by-day -day, uh, movement vocabulary. But, and again, I listened to the music, and that, that seemed to make a landscape and a place to put this family and these whoever, visiting angels or something. <laughs> I never said this to anybody before. Maybe I told Jennifer, but usually Jennifer Tipton, when she would come to light it, and I'd say, do you want to just look, or do you want me to tell you what I think I've done? She said, I've just looked down. <laughs> <laughs> and what was interesting was that she would sometimes see things that I didn't even realize I had done. And by <clears throat> using the right light, she would point those things up. She could sharpen them and make them even more, more uh, readable and accessible. And I think that, that that was her great talent. Because sometimes I'd go to a performance with her. It wasn't her lighting. And I'd say, well, the dance just seemed to fall apart. She said, I don't think we saw it. There's a lot in there that didn't get lit properly. <laughs> and so, so light is you know, a very important aspect of the universe. 
light years, travel is measured in, in light. And it's, it's uh, the speed limit of the universe, I think they call it. If the light travels, you can't go any faster. And um, that uh, the way light falls does reveal volume, depth, perspective, and then color. <clears throat> and then if you go into color, that even adds more uh, emotional impact. Mm. She often works with very clear light, starting basically with just clear light and using brightness and darkness, and then a, a blue wash or a pink wash. Doesn't use amber very much. But, um, and of course, being in that light affects the way you dance. Uh, my dancers loved, they said, oh, it's, I can't wait to get into the theater to see what Jennifer's going to do. And they said that dancing in her... They could uh, feel, the, they could feel, feel the, the lights. And it was, like, it was like making a place, like a landscape. You felt... Mm -hmm. uh, and Deborah Jowett said once, um, I, I, the Shostakovich had a dark, a lot of it very dark, but in um, an, an Ives piece I did, did also. But Deborah Jowett said Jennifer Tipton's, and it was a nice compliment because it seems to like Dan Wagner's dances uh, in, a, in a different way. And that she often uses a lot of darkness, but it's, the blackness is not nothingness, that it's a place. And, and it, it, it does illuminate, even though it's, it looks black. And I think that she could do that. And it, it, for me, it did. It was like uh, going to a beautiful place to dance. And and, uh, and I like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm fascinated by the range of your allusions, by the range of, of what you bring in your own thought processes mm -hmm. to to dance. Mm -hmm. you, you're you're referencing, I think, Tolstoy and chakras. Yes. And yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's all it's all an act. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, because clearly you have that. Clearly you have that information. And, and are you an autodidact? Are you? <laughs> yes, yes, that means self-taught. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, it's interesting. I come from Appalachia, from West mm -hmm. Virginia, the youngest of ten, and I was left alone pretty much in the family. My father went through the fifth McGuffey's Reader, and I don't know how far my mother went. I never heard her say, and never asked her. But my father, he was very wise, and he read, I took organic chemistry books home, and he read, or he opened them up, I don't know if he, he read them or whatever, but <clears throat> he read, and he was very wise, um, and went to New York, and very shortly uh, after I got there, uh, met Paul Taylor in the Graham Company, and he introduced me to a friend of his who was a poet, George Montgomery. And George was the exact opposite of, of, of my background. He came from Connecticut, Farmington. Um, from a more uh, affluent family, was ready for Harvard at age 15, brilliant mind, and um, knew all the artists in New York at the time, painters, writers, uh, photographers, the museum people, and I met him, and it was a relationship that went on for almost, well, for 40 years from that time, and he was like, a, he was eight years older and pretty much like a mentor, and uh, when I would go on tour first with Paul Taylor, George would say, uh, oh Dan, I've put some books in your suitcase that I've always liked, and you might. The White Goddess by Robert Graves, Strindberg's plays, and the Charter House of Parma. And he didn't say, you know, you stupid idiot, you should have read all these already. <laughs> there was a gentleness about it. And, and he was friends with Frank O'Hara, who they had been in school together. Frank lived right below us. And then a lot in of... In the same uh, building? Uh-huh. Oh. 791 Broadway, a loft building. Mm -hmm. 
And um, uh, if you said to them, one of them, you know, if, or if they said, what do you do or what are you interested in, and you'd said, I'm a dancer, they didn't say, well, what makes you think you're a dancer? Do you dance anywhere? They'd say, how wonderful. I've got tickets to Aegon. I want to take you to see it. Or, you know, there was this enthusiasm about life. And, and an enthusiasm, and they were both just brilliant. With If you read Frank's poetry, the allusions to all sorts of things are, uh, are just wonderful. And the same way with George. George died in 97, and I realized that all of a sudden I couldn't think of something, I'll ask George. And George wasn't there, of course. But before, when I did ask George, he was there. He would usually answer, and then that would lead to another discussion of you know, uh, St. Thomas, what Aquinas, or all of those different somebody else or whatever. And, uh, uh, but eventually he just said, why don't you look it up <laughs> But uh, But my life became that in New York, of, of listening to all of these different lines of who liked what poet, and Marianne Moore didn't, and who, uh, and, and meeting E.E. E. Cummings' wife and going to see Gene Erdman do a dance that was one of What If a Much of a Witch of a Wind or something, this poetry. And uh, <clears throat> what I'm trying to boil that down to is what you're talking about, is that um, it is the integration. Everything is integrated. It's just like the Big Bang. The whole universe was contained in a particle smaller than, than an atom at, before the Big Bang. And I think that, that all information comes from that same kernel. And it just keeps expanding and expanding and expanding. And going back is fun. How they, where they cross, where they meet, and, and putting it back into, uh, the, uh, into that place. And it, you know, it's like um, in physics, they bombard they, those accelerating tunnels they build, and they accelerate protons and make them collide. <clears throat> and they make different pathways. And the moment you, they record in a cloud chamber, I think, the one path, the others disappear. So it's like view, gazing something into being. And then it gets into all that quantum mechanics, you know, the subparticles, and they behave so strangely. But anyway, it's fascinating and it's wonderful. And um, uh, George was, he had madness and, and painful last 10 years of life. But I had taken him to John. Johns Hopkins in, in uh, is it Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and went back home on the train and feeling very sad. And he was still listening to music. I had to put together some music to start a dance, and he was trying to help me. And um, I got back to the apartment, and for some reason there was the white goddess, which he put in my suitcase every time. I had struggled. I couldn't get through it. I didn't understand a lot of the references. I couldn't pronounce those Celtic names or the Druids and all of that. But anyway, you know, Graves had promised that if you read this book, you will know what the sound of the siren's song was like that lured the sailors. You'll know who clothed the devil's foot, you know, all these wonderful <laughs> things, which I didn't. I read it. But anyway, I picked it up and read the prologue, and I did understand the prologue. And it seemed to explain everything about George. And I think I wept for about an hour that it was... And it surprised me that information, and information that I could dovetail and put together, was so moving that ideas, not, you know, usually I'm moved by love or um, tenderness or death or separation or parting, but that ideas 
became emotional to me. It was just, I, I thought it, and it, ever since then, I, I've been more interested in finding out more. I don't, I don't read as much as I sh would like to. I just can't concentrate that long. But I love poetry and physics. And physics, Jennifer gave me a book on physics, and I, I have a degree in pharmacy, so I took basic physics in college. I said, I don't want any more science. There's plenty of science. She said, no, no, Dan. She said, this is so peculiar, it's metaphysical. Metaphysical. So there's a book, um, Art, uh, Art and Physics by Leonard Schlame. You know it? Yes. It's wonderful. And, and that's the integrate. That guy's smart. He knows history. He knows art. He knows physics. He's an MD, a neurologist, I guess, is, is, is his field. And he puts together information just so incredibly. What was the other one he wrote about the alphabet? The, the alphabet meets, it was about feminine and masculine. Uh, you'd love it. It's wonderful. It was a second book. And I met him. Uh, Jennifer was doing a series of lectures at um, Cooper Union mm -hmm. on light. And she couldn't be there for the last one. And she told him she wanted, I don't think she had met him. Maybe she had called him or something that she wanted Leonard Schlein to come. So they got him. And she, she had a niece, Mary Ellen, who was at the time about 24, I think, and had a birthday. And Jenny wasn't going to be there. So she said, Dan, will you take uh, Mary Ellen to the lecture and then to dinner? That's her birthday present. And then I met Mary Ellen. Mary Ellen said, a physics lecture for my birthday <laughs> present. But we went, and we had a good time. And then we went to the Savoy restaurant. I don't know that you've been there. It's mm -hmm. great. And the guy who runs it likes dancers. Mm -hmm. I've known him, Peter, uh, his last name. Anyway, uh, we went to the uh, went to the lecture, and um, again, I was just amazed at his knowledge and the way he could put. The moment you mention one thing, it sets off another. Oh yes, and that was this and that. You know, mythology, uh, science itself, physics and medicine, anatomy, and and I found it thrilling, mm -hmm. absolutely thrilling. So I think that's the reason that I do have a bit of knowledge. I was being self-effacing saying that it was at all, you know, you learn to pronounce a few words and you don't know what they mean, but you use them once in a while. And it's not like that. Uh, I, and I, I don't know a lot of those things in depth, but uh, it fascinates me. But you're working on integrating all of yes. that knowledge. Yeah. And I think it's because, not because of any wonderful, it's because it's, fast, it's, it's fun. Mm -hmm. it, the, it's, it's erotic. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. How's it erotic? Uh, it makes the endorphins go, and the body starts to percolate and feel like it wants to move around. And I, the sensuality, when I think, I, I call something erotic when all those systems in the body, without a, Martha Graham used to say, all those, all those little flags of celebration up and down the spine. <laughs> and uh, I've thought of that often, and that's what it does. And, and, and watching the dogs, you know, when you come home, their tails just go and go and go, and they can't hide the fact that they're, they're, it's erotic to meet a friend that you love and know that you're going to be with them. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we had tails? And like Suzanne would be saying, oh, Dan, it's so great to see you, and her tail was just hanging straight down. <laughs> and mine was going a mile a minute. We all look at each other's tail to see where the truth led. <laughs> but we do, we do kind of have tails, Exactly, don't we? exactly. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it's those little flags of celebration <laughs> up and down the spine. And Paul, Paul Taylor always talks about that, doesn't he? That he can read people in that way. 
Yes, and he does. He's very well. He's he has another uh, uh, power, I think, an instinct that he really is. He's very instinctual. Mm -hmm. And Paul is someone you know that I think if he got caught in a bear trap in the woods, he could take his penknife and and free himself. And that he survives. Mm -hmm. And and it's and it's. Um, and he's very brutal in, in his observation and in doing that, but it's usually the truth. Mm -hmm. And no, it's, it's peculiar, strange and peculiar. He doesn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And he would deny it probably if I mentioned it to him. But um, in my observation of him, it's, uh, yeah, and there's a tremendous anger in him and, and uh, strength from that. He, it was the same kind of anger, I think, that... Uh, did you, have you read Duberman's Lincoln Kirsten? I'm actually about two-thirds of the way through Yes, it. yes. Mm -hmm. And Paul and Lincoln were good friends. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether they saw each other that much or not, but... Uh, and Paul... Had, he has photographs in his uh, house there in New York of, of himself and Lincoln. And, and he said, just the last... In March, when I was there, he said that he admired Lincoln very much. And, uh, and of course, part of that is the energy that that Lincoln was, oh, I guess, practically bipolar, that it was mm -hmm. way up and way down, mm -hmm. but that he just went constantly and saw everything, painting, and, you know, someone who had um, big banks of knowledge. Mm. Well, reading the Duberman, I think one of the things, I mean, you certainly know Kirstein achieved an enormous amount, but actually reading the way Duberman takes you through each day yes. and seeing what he did in a single day, yeah. and you think, I don't do that in a year. Yeah, and, and, and Duberman, <laughs> Duberman does it very well. Uh, I felt bruised. I just felt the, like the writing was gracefully brutal, <laughs> and I began to feel a bit what it was like mm. if one tried to keep up mm -hmm. with that kind of energy. Mm. But it's also interesting, isn't it, that he, that he does, that he takes you through a day, and um, He's doing something for the ballet, and he's doing something for the Museum of Modern Art, and he's doing something for Hound and Horn, and he's doing something for this and this and this. And he takes someone off to see an exhibit, you've just got to see this. Absolutely, and he does all this and does all this, and then he's going out and having sex all night long, <laughs> that's all part, but that's all part of it for yes, him, too, yes, isn't that, it? Yes, that energy, it's the yeah. erotic energy, yeah. and it just drove him, it, it was driven, mm -hmm. and um, yes, mm -hmm. interesting, interesting man. Yeah. Incredible knowledge. I, I met him from time to time, mm -hmm. and uh, I was just overwhelmed by him. I mean, I, he was just big physically, mm -hmm. and uh, and went to his house and saw those um, Paul Cadmus, the Seven Deadly Sins, oh, mm -hmm. and uh, but uh, and I went once. And he had the sculptures of Nodelman, and mm -hmm. Nodelman was very influenced by American folk art. He collected American folk art, and there, I was there one evening, and Nodelman there was a sculpture. And I was looking at it, and Lincoln came over and said, what do you think, or whatever. And I said, oh, it's wonderful. And I said, but I understand that, and I said, I like folk art, and I understand he um, was influenced by a lot. And Lincoln just went into a tirade. Folk art, it's dilettante. Uh, it's, nothing right comes from that. You have to have, he believed in virtuosity, of mm -hmm. course, whether it was painting or dancing or music. And just would not, and it was hard for him to accept Paul and Martha, and he still doesn't. You know, modern dance is just going to fade into the distance, mm -hmm. with these few exceptions that have contributed. But uh, you know, I can't—I don't remember. I thought that the Paul was talking about a piece was roses, 
but maybe it was, and then you mentioned it again this time, and he said it was last look, or maybe Duberman says it was last look, that Lincoln came to the rehearsal, mm -hmm. at um, the dress rehearsal at um, City Center, and they did one of those dances, and Paul said Lincoln got up and disappeared at the end of it, and said he went out in the hall and said Lincoln was just sobbing, crying. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and it probably it was, uh, for Lincoln, surprising to react that way to this dilettante dancing, <laughs> you know, that I'm sure he was, and he, he would say the opposites, what, like John Cage, say one thing one day and say, oh, I was wrong, it's this. <laughs> Have you read Carolyn's book? I'm just in, just at the beginning of that book. It's, yeah. once you pick it up, I had them going, I got the Duberman, no, I got Carolyn's first, and I read some of it, and then I found the Duberman, and then I went all the way through that, and then finished Carolyn up. But Carolyn's is irresistible once, mm -hmm. it's, because there are a lot of people that want you, and situations, and she's very accurate and very clear, and um, it's, it's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. And she talks a lot about indeterminacy, and chaos, and probability, and all of that sort of thing, and that... Um, you know, has a lot of, I should think for, you know, if you're teaching any of that, that it would be a good resource mm -hmm. book. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I've actually been enjoying it. I'm trying to, I started it, I got it after the Duberman. Yes. I was reading the Duberman, and I was getting attracted. I thought, no, i got to go back to the Duberman, and I'll get <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, that's smart, to, to get the full dose of Lincoln. Because <laughs> yeah. I was exhausted by the time that was over. Oh, absolutely. It is, and, it is, I, I've been describing <clears throat> to people as a mountain that you climb. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I keep thinking of, of both graceful, bloodiness or <laughs> graceful gutsiness, yeah. And his wife, uh, Paul's sister, Fidelma, mm -hmm. very sad, mm -hmm. very talented, I guess. But the range of people he knew. It's absolutely and, and involved, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, back to the, back to the pelvis. Um, <laughs> so, um, with all of this interest you and you have in in physics and poetry and and ev everything you've been talking about, um, what does dance do that none of those other things do? I think it brings them all together in one fell swoop, mm -hmm. one good swirl of the pelvis, and you have touched all the bases in the universe. No, I really believe that. I know you do. That's <laughs> why I'm I'm laughing with joy, actually. Uh, that. Uh, uh, that all information does cross and perhaps came from one, you can think of an idea having having volume or energy, if certainly an idea has energy, mm -hmm. and that it was all, all ideas contained in one tiny little place, and from that big bang, it, it's just, and that each of us can hold on to it and take it as far as we have the courage and stamina and breath to do. But I think so many of us don't, and I think part of it is that the culture and the educational system fails to empower people that we become, uh, you know, with so little interest to make, I think a lot of it is the way of living that we've taken away process. I was talking again this morning about uh, most people now for diversion go to the mall and get something physical, uh, materialistic, I mean, uh, as a diversion, mm -hmm. and that uh, we do all of the easy way out, whereas just even back in the 1930s, my mother and father sustained themselves and ten kids on a little plot of land that they knew how to plant the potatoes, 
the onions had to go out as soon as the ground was unfrozen late February. Um, they raised the pigs, he cured them, cured the hams, uh, rendered the lard. <clears throat> My mother used the lard to bake with, the old lard she used lye and made the laundry soap. They could use everything and they knew those processes. And now I go back and look at that same little house in the land and it's just a lawn. You know, it's none, not even a trace of what they did. The gooseberry bush, bush is gone. The old log granary is gone where the smoked hams, the cured hams. My father didn't smoke them. He cured them with salt and sugar, I think. But, um, and that the process, it was hard. It was hard life, and they worked hard. But that that process got you somewhere in your body that there was, that's the reason I think that they were so smart. Like my father, very wise. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a degree in pharmacy. When I got ready to go to New York, totally leaping off the deep end to dance, and I was not a technician of any sorts too much, had danced with Ethel Butler, who encouraged me there in Washington. And the family was discussing, what a, some of them saying, what a terrible waste to give up this lucrative career as a pharmacist to go dance. And finally, the, my, one of my sisters said, my father came out into the room and said, if he wants to go to New York and dance, that's what he should do. And don't any of you say anything negative to him about it. I said, did he really say that? And she said, yes. So I began to look at him differently. And we became, in the last years, very, I felt very close to him. He had a wonderful sense of humor. And, <clears throat> and when uh, I was, in, was home, I was in New York then, when I was home, I would take care of him so my sisters would, didn't have to every day help him bathe and shave and so forth. And I didn't know if I'd be able to do that or how comfortable. But he was just so dignified and so direct about, and such a good sense of humor. We giggled and laughed. And, uh, it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was lucky to get to have that, actually. But anyway, uh, what, the, uh, what was, how did I get off on that? You had at last asked me. We're talking about, I guess, all ideas coming from one place, maybe. Yeah, I, was, I, I had asked you um, about what dance has to, why, why dance. Yes, in, in, yes. Yeah. And I think that for those, those of, and of course we all have predispositions towards pleasure. Some people like the eye, some like the ear, the sounds, the piano, music. But dancing incorporates all of those things, I think. And, you know, I keep thinking that maybe I'm not a very uh, bright or discerning receiver of pleasure, that it's, if, I, if it was just one place, I would be a pianist or I'd be a painter. But I love it all. <laughs> and so I'm just rushing around to experience everything that the body can, can, possibly, uh, can possibly do. Mm. Um. Can you just tell how you started dancing? Yes. Um, when I was probably about seven or eight, my sister used to play the piano and encourage me to dance, and I made up dances. I don't know what I did. And then I performed them. At the, the schoolhouse that I went to had an auditorium, it had a stage, and it had a curtain that opened. You pulled a rope in a back little booth, and the curtain opened and shut. And I can remember the first time standing on that stage and someone opened that curtain. I don't know why I remember it, but it was like, you know, it was just orgasmic. It was just like something wonderful happening. And it amazes me that I remember, I didn't think of those things for a long time. Then when I was about probably 12 or 13, 
my brother was going, the county went to high school in another town nine miles away, was going to decorate for the uh, prom, the senior prom. And for some reason I rode along. I'd never been in that school before. And it was in the gymnasium, and there was nothing, it was empty, it was clear. And we walked into the door, and there was that expanse of space, and it was the same feeling again. I thought, oh my God, how beautiful. I don't know why or what I thought could happen there, mm -hmm. but it was space, mm -hmm. and and defined by a wooden floor and walls, and um, so I think it was there was something instinctual. I didn't know anyone who danced professionally, no one to talk to about it, where to go. I had straight A's in high school, so one of my brothers thought I should be a doctor, the same one who thought I shouldn't dance, <laughs> and um, <clears throat> uh, but. Went to then decide pharmacy was good pre-med, and I thought, well, uh, there's still maybe a chance after four years of pharmacy to still dance, and I won't. But if I'm in pre-med, I'll and get into med school, then I'm I'm done. Mm -hmm. So I went to the university as a freshman, decided saying that I was not going to um, dance. Look at that. I didn't go to see any movies that had dancing or anything. And at the end of the year, there was a little orchestra group there, and I went to see their performance. <clears throat> and it excited me so much about dancing and moving. So I asked them if I could join, and of course they only had one other guy, I think, and he said, oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I ended up choreographing. I don't know if I imitated movies or what I did, but none of them wanted to choreograph, so I did. And um, in fact, I made a duet with a woman, her name was Vaughn Nolte, and she... Uh, the, the duet was a big success. It had lifts. I must have stolen it from movies. or I don't know where I, how I got the idea. But we experimented a lot. And uh, it was a big success. And it's so amazing that, what, that was in college and uh, back in the 50s. And two of my friends uh, in, in the dance department, maybe three of them in the dance department, were in Pittsburgh. And they were in a bar. And they started talking with this couple or this woman about um, dance. She heard them say something about dance. And, uh, they, and then she said, oh, I, I just, dancing was the most exciting thing in my life. And in college, this wonderful experience. And they sort of said more and more and then said, well, who was it? And she said, oh, you'd never know. It's, he went off to New York, Dan Wagner. And they said, well, he's our friend. <laughs> Isn't that amazing that they would, over those generations and in such a different place? But anyway, um, uh, I don't know why I told that story. But uh, dancing, and of course staying in the field as long as I have. Uh, hard, I hardly meet anyone who doesn't, it's dancing, who uh, doesn't say, I took class with you and oh, yeah. such and such. Mm -hmm. But... Um, you know that thing how everybody's connected in the world? Yes. Everybody, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yes. You're the Kevin Bacon of the dance world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we were talking about that. Uh, where, you were asking me how I got onto dancing. Mm -hmm. But I would say it was intuitive and instinctual. Mm -hmm. But I was lucky. I went to New York, got a scholarship at the Graham. I'd gone to Connecticut College and, and had classes with David Wood and one week with Martha. At ADF. At ADF. Yeah. And after the class with Martha, I was outside, and she came up to me, and she sort of rubbed my side, said, you're a bit tight through here, but you'll do. <laughs> so I thought I was anointed. I had, well, you were. So I went to New York, and she got a scholarship there, and then Paul was, uh, Paul was around, and I met Paul. And uh, then she, nine months later, asked me to be in the company, mm. so I started rehearsing. 
And uh, Paul then asked me to start rehearsing with him. They all did so little that you could do both. And um, then met Remy Charlotte in that downtown group. And Merce asked me to dance with him. So I had all those experiences. I just assumed that happened to everybody, that you just went to New York and danced with all the people you'd read about. And, <laughs> and sort of finding out about the aesthetics as I went along. And, and of course, that's always tangential. The first trip I took with Merce and John Cage driving on a microbus, and Remy Charlotte and Nick Cernovich did the lights, and David Tudor was the musician, and John did the music, and Carolyn Brown, and Viola Farber, and Marilyn Wood, and Remy and myself. And John wouldn't let us eat at any restaurants. We bought vegetables and steamed them along the road in a little fire, and he would pick greens and all that sort of thing. <laughs> so I thought, well, this is different. <laughs> you were foraging for your food. <laughs> yes, but the, uh, but the sense of humor, the jokes, the games were so different from the Graham Company. Mm. And of course, I'd never been on tour with the Graham Company, so not thrown into a little micro VW bus. And, uh, and hearing John's stories, and uh, Merce, was all, Merce was sort of would isolate himself. He was always working on the next flyer for a, a dance sequence. He was uh, a, a teaching stint that he was going to do when he got back. And, but John was smiling and telling stories and fun. And uh, Viola was a lot of fun. We giggled and laughed a lot. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but anyway, uh, I was, you know, danced with those companies, and then danced longest with Paul, and then uh, began to feel I wanted to work in a different way, and um, and left left him and had my own company for about 25 years, and directed London Contemporary for about two years. Mm -hmm. So I guess it, I, I feel that you know either I was just absolutely brilliant or a complete fool, to, and I think I was naive enough. If I hadn't been that naive, I wouldn't have been able to face the danger of doing that. But I met these interesting people and like mentors and I, w I was lucky. Uh, but I loved it and I worked very hard. Mm. When you say face the danger of doing that, did you mean the danger of just trying to make a life in dance in the United States? Yes. Or? I think if I had been more informed or had been living in New York and seeing the people, how talented the people were who weren't getting jobs and mm -hmm. I didn't have that much technical skill at the time I went there that I would have been scared off, I think, by mm. I don't know, maybe not. I, but being naive enough to think that you can do anything, mm -hmm. and that's a lovely thing to suggest if you have children, that yes, everything's possible. <laughs> it's like that, uh, that wonderful poem of George's, if I have met you once, I will meet you twice. We will say hello, goodbye, hello, goodbye, till all the clocks break down. When everything seems possible, very little will do nicely. This chair is my friend. <clears throat> there are others, but this one is my friend. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's so beautiful. Can you say the one also that you said last night, which I thought was so lovely? Yes. <clears throat> I think I remember which one. Say little and let others discover you. Or say nothing and avoid discovery altogether. Live in a cave on the side of a mountain and die taking the mountain with you. It's nice, isn't it's it? It's beautiful. Yeah. Was, did, um, did George study Zen? 
Red. Red. Red Suzuki, is that his name, yeah. that wrote the books? Mm -hmm. And uh, ooh, there was an American who wrote several books on him. Alan Watts. Watts, that's mm -hmm. the name, yes. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, again, he absorbed things. Mm -hmm. It was like he already knew it. Mm -hmm. And he had a real eye for Asian sculpture and painting and uh, was the um, uh, gallery director at Asia House when it first opened and designed a lot of those shows and installed them. And, uh, and knew a lot of people who collected Asian art and um, went to dinner at their houses and uh, borrowed sculptures and pieces for shows. And One of the early shows he did, and I went to watch him put it in, it, it, he let me come to Asia House's uh, Haniwa. There's little clay Japanese burial mm. figures that are from about, I guess, zero AD or zero BC, or whichever, the common era. And, um, and it was interesting to watch him handle, uh, you know, they were very precious and so forth, but he did it, which I felt was a very zen-like way. It was like picking up a cup of coffee in a way, yet it was very sure, and you knew that there would be no misstep or anything happen. And, um, uh, or maybe it was just that I found him so beautiful and so interesting that I attributed that. But I would watch him work, and, and he was a beautiful mover. He could, he danced, there was a Poets Theater in Cambridge when those people were graduating, Frank O'Hara, Kenneth Coach, John Ashbery, George, Bunny Lang, Violet Lang, they wrote them, and um, Lonnie Phelps, they wrote plays for each other and performed in each other's plays, and he danced in some of those. He studied, and he took ballet classes with a woman, Nora White, who was Pat Wild, Patricia Wilde's sister. Did you know Patricia Wilde in the New York City Ballet? Yes. Uh -huh. And uh, it was her sister, and he took and and uh, once I was studying at the Joffrey School, and Beatrice Tompkins told me I should get a pair of toe shoes to strengthen my feet. So I went to Capizio's, and I knew the guy there. And he said, "Dan, I don't think this. I think I got a pair that you can wear, but it's not going to do you any good." So he brought out these <laughs> huge leather, black leather toe shoes, and I took them home. I bought them. And I tried and tried, and I couldn't get up in them. And George put them on and ran across the loft on his toes, saying, Dan, is this the way you do it? I said, you son of a bitch, you know that's the way you do it, and I can't do it. Oh, that's great. Okay, you're, you're switching to, you know what, this is a good time to stop, I think. I don't know, I don't want to, I know you have lunch, I don't want to keep, I don't want to take your whole day. Do I have lunch? Uh, yeah, and you have lunch, and... Um, but you know what? I would love this to be the first of several that we do. I'll come. Maybe I'll come down to Florida. Haven't I said everything? No, you haven't begun. Oh, you could come to Florida. That would be great. You could um, maybe. Uh, I'm actually on the. I'm actually on the Nancy board. I've ne and I've never. Are you? Been, I've never been. Well, we should talk to um, uh, Jennifer uh, yeah. about it, and maybe you, they'll buy you a ticket and uh, put you up or mm -hmm. something. That would be great. Yeah, yeah. Or there's a forum each Wednesday uh, at 11, 10 mm -hmm. or 11, 11, I think. And maybe you could speak or present something if you wanted to. Well, I would love to come do some more oral histories with you. I, your story needs to get told. And we've just begun. I thought I said it all. No, you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what? I, I'm thinking, um, we have to talk, but I'm thinking of... Maybe trying to trying to um, edit this into something for Contact Quarterly or something more philosophical. Uh -huh. But then, but then, really try to get your whole story down. You say you're not a writer, but you actually are. 
you're I feel like I, I could literally transcribe what you're saying mm -hmm. into <laughs> Well into I what words. everyone told tells me that and mm -hmm. I have tried to write things down from time to I did write a little thing about my house in West Virginia that I was wasn't too bad. And um, but I'd write it down and then go back and look at it and thought, this is so sophomoric. It's just you know and that to write you've got to practice. And I don't do it every day. I don't write every day. But uh, but of course coming from we told stories and read my sister read me all the fairy tales and you know would ooh and ah over look what's coming up. Oh, Dan, look at this drawing and of course it was just well, that's what we used to think literature was, yes. too, you know, Homer, you're Homer, it's okay. <laughs> a bit, uh, a bit late. <laughs>